Hello and welcome to episode three of the Ashdown Forest podcast. We begin this episode on a sombre note as we received the incredibly sad news that James Adler, the chief executive of the Conservators of Ashdown Forest, died unexpectedly this May. He was a truly remarkable man and also a great supporter of this podcast. And James featured in a recent episode of BBC Radio 4's Ramblings with Claire Balding. And if you'd like to listen on BBC Sounds, you can hear his astonishing eloquence and knowledge. We'll be honouring James in future episodes of this podcast. So I'm Eka Morgan, an audio producer, and this podcast takes the Ashdown Forest as a catalyst for wider conversations about wildlife. And I'm Tom Forward, wildlife guide and ecologist, and we're here at Old Lodge on the Ashdown Forest, which is a nature reserve managed by Sussex Wildlife Trust. And Tom also featured in the Ramblings episode, and after we'd finished recording that, I briefly interviewed Claire Balding, so we've got that coming up after our dawn walk. And that's followed by the rewilding pioneer and best-selling author Isabella Tree from Nep Wildland. And Isabella mentions James Adler several times in her interview in connection with the enthusiasm and vision he had for the Wheel to Waves Wildlife Corridor. So, Tom, we're about to hear our dawn chorus walk, and we know already that you're past master at mimicking birds. But I'd just like to hear you say a few words on when you think it's appropriate to call birds up and when you think it's not appropriate. I'm always really mindful not to overdo it, because if the bird starts expending precious energy on chasing off a a human mimic, that's energy that could be spent nest building or attracting a genuine mate. And is there a difference between calling up common birds and rare birds? Presumably it's a bit less ethical with rare birds. Yeah, I mean, if they're rare, it's even more important for them not to waste any of that precious energy chasing up false leads. So we dragged ourselves out of bed this morning at uh, what felt like an ungodly hour, but it is peaking springtime now and we have to get out and celebrate the sound of the dawn chorus at this time of year. So we found ourselves in a bit of wet woodland on the Ashdown Forest and one of the things that we wanted to try and capture is what is the difference between the sounds of woodland at dawn versus out on the heath. So we'll head off on our morning walk shortly and see if we can capture some of the differences in sound. Tom, just, I wonder if you can unpick the sounds because there is a faint gill in the background as well, gill stream. And then beyond that, over to you. All right, well. The sequence, pretty much as you'd expect. The the robin was the first to pipe up just as we arrived, and slowly added to that has been blackbird. We can hear it just around in the background. There you go. The great tit's just waking up in the distance with his teacher, teacher, teacher. I noticed you didn't do the robin then, is that? <laughs> <laughs> you got me, yeah. Well, robin's pretty tricky. I haven't quite mastered that. The sound of the robin song yet. Yeah. I have to admit, when I'm stopped in my tracks yeah. and I look up, 
nine times out of ten, it's a robin. It is a robin, yeah. And they've got a funny, yeah, it's, it's hard to describe. To me, it sounds like a sort of liquid trickling sound that they kind of sing for two and a half seconds or so and then they pause and they have a little listen and go oh is anybody else singing near me it is one of the most beautiful songs but it's it's not that easy to get hold of uh the pause um what can i hear at the moment there's a really energetic rattling trilling song coming from the wren we feel like we're kind of surrounded by them it's a tiny bird but what a sound it makes And most of the birds that we're hearing singing are the male birds, which are setting up breeding territories and showing off to the female birds what a good spot they've found. And female wrens are pretty picky, apparently, so the male may have to make several nests before she'll agree to settle down with him, and that's all while he's also having to sing his little syrinxes off to make a great sound. Syrinx? <laughs> yeah, I did say syrinx at this time of day. Well, that is the bird version of, uh, of a larynx, which enables them to make these incredibly rich and complex songs and sounds, and particularly enables them to make multiple sounds simultaneously. So I think to the tune of the coltit, which has just joined us, there it is. We'll wrap up here in the woods. We're gonna head up the hill and out onto the heath and see what we get there. You hear that buzzard echo? <laughs> it's not a buzzard, is it? It isn't. It's a jay doing a buzzard. And I didn't believe they were capable of this, but apparently they are. I'll do my buzzard and it'll probably call back. There we go. It's <laughs> not quite perfect buzzard. Jays are part of the crow family and they're incredibly intelligent. Uh, one of the things that they take issue with, there he goes again, are birds of prey. And they call their bluff by basically mimicking them. And I've been fooled a number of times now, but it's, oh, I mean, that's almost perfect buzzard, isn't it? But it's just the jay above our heads in the oak tree. What's its normal sound? Its name, jay, basically. Just goes, jay! It's a really harsh, harsh sound. But that is alarmingly accurate. Let's get onto the heath. Yeah. So we've just come out onto the open heath and as hoped for, the sounds are very different. We're just watching a, a territorial dispute between a couple of white throats. There's a male who seems to be holding territory over a patch of gorse. And you can hear that lovely kind of chattering, stuttering, scratchy song that he's making, which he sings while he's doing a slightly faltering flight dance over his patch of gorse. And another bird just arrived and he quickly flew in and chased it off. So this is definitely his patch. And he's flown all the way from Africa for our summer, for this breeding season, and he's not about to give up this hard-won territory. 
over the other side of the path we've got several pairs of linnets which set aside their differences to play the safety in numbers game and nest close by to each other. And the linnet song is a sort of jaunty syncopated jazz tune. The sound of the cuckoo was a reliable sound of spring when I was a child and this is a bird that has a bit of a reputation for its choice in breeding strategy. It's known technically as a brood parasite. What that means is instead of making a nest and doing it by itself it outsources its parenting to host species. So when the male comes and cuckoos he'll hopefully attract in a female and once mated she will then go off in search of on the Ashdown Forest, dunnock nests and meadow pipit nests and try and sneak an egg into one of those nests. She's capable of up to 20 different egg lays, so she could lay an egg in 20 different nests. I have seen pictures of egg mimicry and yeah. you can hardly differentiate them. Yeah, well the cuckoo that lays an egg in the dunnock's nest manages to match that kind of pale blue with a few speckles that the dunnock produces, albeit the egg is a bit larger. And the cuckoo chick will hatch first and indulge in a bit of egg tossing behaviour and using its back shove the dunnock eggs out of the nest. And they also become huge compared to their parents. They do. It's not uncommon to see the parent bird actually having to perch on the head of the juvenile cuckoo and feed it caterpillars. What about the noise that the cuckoo makes? Does that lure the dunnock? Uh, yeah, the cuckoo has a begging call that is very persistent and very urgent and just cries out, feed me and feed me now. But it doesn't sound like a baby dunnock? It doesn't sound like a baby dunnock begging call, no. And perhaps for me, the most incredible thing about the cuckoos is that after becoming fully fledged from their adoptive parents' care, they make a journey as an unaccompanied minor all the way back to Central Africa, a journey that they've never made before. So Claire Balding has a programme on Radio 4 called Ramblings and they have been kind enough to come and visit the Ashdown Forest and see every different aspect of its gorgeous beauty. Had such a lovely day doing it as well and I can't believe that in the 23 and a half years that I've done Ramblings I'm not sure we've ever walked here. Now I'm thinking way 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 back did I do a poo sticks thing and I I kind of have a memory of dropping a stick, but I've never felt like I've really explored it before in the heathland and understanding more about it. And Yeah, I've really loved it. I'm so glad we brought you back. One of the things I wanted to ask you is, how have you found the changing landscapes? Are you heartened by what you see across the UK in spite of what we hear in the media? Well, first off, I'd say that I think we do have here in the UK the most varied, diverse landscapes. So if you want to walk coastal paths, you can. If you want to walk through woodland or heathland or downland, you've got all of those options and more. Moorland, you know, we have got everything. We've got more footpaths than 
well certainly any country in Europe because we've mapped them so efficiently. I love the fact that certainly in the last 23 or 4 years I've noticed a growing appreciation for walking of what it can bring us and the benefits obviously physically and mentally. I'm a very upbeat and positive person so of course everything I've said so far has been positive. What do I see that's worrying? Erosion massively. I mean the footpaths that just don't exist anymore that I know I walked on 10 years ago. I see a fair bit more rubbish. Not here and I've noticed that we've picked up two bits of rubbish this morning and that's it. I've got a real problem with litter. People just thinking it's all right to chuck things and they obviously think some areas are not owned, they don't feel ownership of it. What about the word wild? Has that changed in your knowledge of the UK landscape? I I think it doesn't have to be remote. Wildness is, um, I was going to say wildness is a state of mind, that sounds like I'm writing a pop song, but I think where we are right now is wild and yet we're 30 miles from London. You You don't have to go to the outer edges of the the Hebrides, but it doesn't have to be about going on safari. That's what I'd say. I've understood there is wildness closer to home. I was listening to your Desert Island discs and I oh, yeah. heard that your book that you want to take on a mm. Desert Island, along with the eight tracks, was the Encyclopedia of Nature. And I'm wondering in your decades of ramblings, how much more responsive you are to nature since you must have learned some more trees and birdsong along well, the way. Well, I have, but I'm still woefully bad. Um, you know, I've had such an education this morning. Tom is extraordinary. And, you know, having listened to your podcasts as well, the way he, his energy and his excitement, he's got that child within him still. And I definitely have that. I get really excited, but I do need things to be pointed out to me. I think what feeds my soul is curiosity. Well, maybe we could end by you mentioning your favourite wildlife sound, preferably one that might be found on the Ashdown Forest, a heathland sound. I would pick this even if we weren't right next to a running stream. The sound of running water. I really love it. And I know that chemically, if you're near water, there's something it does, particularly a waterfall, that breaking the air molecules is in a way that charges you differently and is good for you. So it isn't just a myth that being near running water is, uh, you know, that makes you happy. It, it really does. Lovely. Well, we'll record a bit of the Garden of Eden, which we're right next to that. forward our wildlife guide is also a guide at NEP, the pioneering rewilding project in Sussex, begun as much as 22 years ago now. And Isabella Tree is with me on Ashdown Forest and together with her husband Charlie Burrell she has not only brought about the NEP transformation but they've both just published a quite extraordinary encyclopedic tome, probably shortly to be called the Rewilding Bible, the Book of Wilding. So we're here to discuss that and, and, and as many other topics as we can cover in our time on this birch log that we're on. First of all, I'm so flattered that you accepted to do this interview because your book literally came out last week. I'm so thrilled to be here and it's just so nice to be away from Zoom and having a chance to wander around Ashdown Forest, which I don't know well at all, so it's an absolute delight. Oh, good, yes, because our USB is that we do all the interviews out in the forest and on the heath, so that's lovely that you mentioned that. So 
And there's so much context to set, really, because we can't assume that everyone knows NEP. But I'll just describe my little encounters with it, which is my first encounter with NEP, apart from your book, Wilding, was to walk about eight miles on the public footpath. So I know NEP's known for its safaris, but you don't actually have to pay to go. The day that we went, the birdsong was the most resounding I've ever heard anywhere. And then my next encounter was last year, I went on a dawn chorus, and there was one moment where wild ponies rushed past us, and at the same time, a cuckoo was cooing, cuckooing, <laughs> and turtle doves were doing their lovely touring, touring <laughs> and there were nightingales. Uh, it was just almost overwhelming. And so maybe you could start by telling us how your relationship to the word wild not even rewilding yet, but wild has changed? That's a really interesting question. I, I, I think, um, you know, just doing, being on this, you know, sort of galloping adventure has changed the way we think. Before we started rewilding, we used to travel the ends of the earth. I was a travel correspondent and we used to go all over the world to see wildlife, to find places that were truly wild. And we never once thought why we weren't staying at home and, and looking for wildness. I think we now know why, and <laughs> um, we've just got rid of it. And we, Charlie and I were as culpable as anybody else. You know, we were farming our species to extinction. But the joy of it, of rewilding, is seeing that you can turn a piece of land that 20 years ago had no notable nature and turn that into one of the most important biodiversity hotspots we have in the UK. You know, and it's underneath the Gatwick stacking system. It's nowhere particularly special. It's surrounded by A roads, and there we are with, you know, probably one of the densest populations of songbirds, as you say, in Britain now, and rare species like the nightingale and the turtle dove, which may go extinct in the next 10 or 15 years. But at NEP, we are one of the very few places, if, if not the only place, where turtle dove numbers are rising. So it's also an amazing story of hope. Yes, it, it was against all odds because the soil was so depleted. The land is flat. You know, it ought to be quite dull. And yet every bit trumps most <laughs> of the wildlife around it. Um, so that was one of the things I wanted to ask is the nuance between your books have always had wilding in the title rather than rewilding. Is, is there a nuance that you'd like to explain between those two words? The first book we called Wilding, The Return of Nature to a British Farm, because at the time... The rewilding word was just so controversial, people could hardly speak it without spitting with rage. We really wanted to avoid the heffalump trap. Very appropriate. Very appropriately, I know. (laughs) Winnie the Pooh territory. (laughs) Of, Of using a word that often evokes in people's minds trying to recover the past. That's not what rewilding is about at all. It's all about thinking of how we can put nature back in the driving seat. So wilding sounds a bit more like pointing that direction rather than re-going back. And actually, just before we start the book, I think we perhaps should describe NEP a bit more because I feel, in my excitement, I've hurried it through, whereas actually not everyone really will have the scene. So if you could do a little brief synopsis of, of what it was and what it's become. Well, when we inherited NEP from Charlie's grandparents, my husband's grandparents, in about 1985... 
It was an intensive arable and dairy farm on 3,500 acres of low wheeled clay. You're lucky with the heathland here, but my God, farming on clay is not fun. We sit on 350 metres of the stuff over a bedrock of limestone. So we took 17 years to realise that, you know, whatever we did, however many efficiencies we made, we were never really going to beat the clay. We're simply on the wrong kind of land to do intensive modern farming. So in 1999, Charlie, my husband, made this brave decision, I think it was brave, to cut farming out of our lives. And that's when we were really looking around for something that we could do with the land rather than battling against it all the time. And so we were able to start afresh. We introduced old English longhorn cattle. They're doing a very good imitation of their ancestor, the aurochs, that we hunted to extinction. The Exmoor ponies are standing in for their ancestor, the tarpan. We've got Tamworth pigs doing a very good impression of wild boar. And we've got fallow and red deer, and we've got roe deer in small numbers. So all sorts of mouthpieces, if you like to think of it that way, doing different things, different hooves, different disturbances, all kind of messing up the vegetation in different ways, creates unbelievable matrix of margins that just means that life has skyrocketed. So now we come to your latest book. Well, it was a complete surprise to me because what I was expecting, hearing that you were writing a book of wilding, was a kind of guide to the humble, someone who's got a back garden and sort of encouraging them to possibly dig a small pond and maybe be a bit less obsessively tidy. And instead, you've done nothing less than quite extraordinary feat. I mean, it is a huge sort of golden tome, I would call it, which really is an exhaustive, all-encompassing encyclopedia of how to rewild on whatever scale you're at, from window box to if you do happen to have many thousands of acres. So who do you want to read it? Because it's a commitment to read mm. that, unless you just go to the chapter on small gardens. Who, who do you expect to read it and what do you hope its impact to be? Um, everyone. <laughs> I, think, I think that's the answer. We want everyone to read it. Originally, when I envisaged this book and I pitched it to the publisher, I expected it to be a little a little handbook that you could slip into your coat pocket and go for a walk with. And now, you know, it is something you have to be very careful if you fall asleep underneath because it could kill you. <laughs> um, but I think what we realised when we began to actually start writing the book in earnest is that rewilding is a spectrum and everybody is on it. So at the wildest end of the spectrum, you've got the Yellowstone National Parks of this world. You've got the big wilderness areas. And then you've got the sort of the neps, the Ashdown forests, the places where you try and have minimal interventions, but you're essentially letting nature sit in the driving seat and do the work for you. So at NEP, we have the free roaming animals. And the only intervention really we do is keep the numbers at a low enough level to maximise the chances for biodiversity. We don't want the populations to grow too big or they will start eating out all the vegetation. And so what can people do who, who maybe have a, if there's such a thing as a normal-sized garden? One of the most nature-friendly things you can do in a garden is to put in a pond. You know, we all know that's wonderful for wildlife. If you're thinking like a rewilder, you would look at that pond as you would in the natural landscape. And you might think like a beaver and put in some woody debris, some branches to rot down. So you're mimicking a, a, a dam wall or a, a beaver lodge. And that will encourage aquatic invertebrates, the algae. It will kickstart a whole 
trophic cascade of nutrients inside the pond and it will give cover for tiny fish and amphibians and everything else from predation. And then you might think like a water buffalo or a cow and trample around the edges and produce little nooks and crannies where other creatures and water plants can get a foothold. So it's really looking at your garden with the mindset of the wider landscape and what can I replicate inside it. So looking through the prism of the Book of Wilding, what would you do to the Ashdown Forest? And please speak freely. (laughs) Bison. Definitely bison. I think, you know, when you look at this landscape, we know that we had huge amounts of heathland in, in southern England and they have all disappeared. And they were largely kept open by domesticated animals in the days of the commons when they were still used for grazing. And they were analogues, really, of the herds of animals that would have been here in the past, the great herds of aurochs and tarpan and bison and everything else. We can have a new species of megafauna back in our islands that can do the work that basically we can't keep up with on nature reserves because it's too expensive. But these animals will do for free. So what would the bison do that the thousands of fallow deer here aren't doing? In the winter, the bison will debark trees. So they'll go around and they'll, they'll literally just gnaw the bark off trees. They're known as chainsaws on legs. Um, so we often think that trees are great, but trees aren't necessarily always great on every habitat. And certainly in places like this, you know, you want to, you want to hold back the march of the trees. And that's what they will do. One of the things that I've heard in your own podcast, the Net Wildland podcast, is that on some of your trip advisors, some campers have complained about the dawn chorus being too loud <laughs> and the moon shining too brightly. <laughs> yes. Where do you begin? <laughs> They've come for an, a wild experience. Yeah, I know. But I think, you know, we're often surprised, you know, nature is noisy and we've forgotten that. That's the whole point, really. We're used to a landscape that is just quiet. So hearing a racket may not be what some people are quite expecting. And I, I do sympathise because, you know, if you have, you're under canvas and you hear that dawn chorus at four o'clock in the morning, it is unbelievable. Do you think that is sort of in the realm of this term shifting baselines? Could you connect that experience to shifting baselines, which is a term I don't, it sounds so scientific, it would be lovely if you can make it more lyrical and appealing. (laughs) Well, it is really interesting, I think. Uh, Shifting baselines is, is really all about how we've just come to think of a depleted landscape as as normal, whereas our parents might have thought that seeing clouds of lapwing would look normal, but their parents would have seen enormous clouds of lapwing and considered that normal. So I think what's happening at NEP is really interesting because we're switching the baseline in the other direction. We're used to hearing nothing in most of our lives, in most of the landscape, and then suddenly you come to NEP and you think, my God, nature is noisy. And it's changing the baseline, even for ecologists. You know, they, every year they come and monitor and survey all our different species. And every year they say, you can't fit more life in here. And every year more life comes. And so it's showing, I think, even ecologists how much more ambitious we should be for nature reserves. I once saw a cartoon of two cavemen walking past Stonehenge and they're saying, all this used to be unspoilt countryside. (laughs) (laughs) Love it. (laughs) How robust have you had to be about criticism? 
In the early days, I think we, we did try at the beginning to win hearts and minds and take people on tractor and trailer rides to explain what we were doing, try and win over neighbours and people in the locality. But we began to realise that it was only the people who were already interested or, or won over anyway who would come. The real naysayers just, just wouldn't even engage. So really, I think it's a question of just um, showing by doing and let it speak for itself. We had a letter from a woman who had written to us in the very early days, one of those really, really furious letters, saying to Charlie that he had done something abominable, had turned something beautiful into an abomination, and his grandparents would be rolling in their graves. And he was, you know, I think he was quite hurt by some of these letters, because they were very personal. But she wrote a couple of years ago and said, I apologise for the letter I sent to you because now I walk NEP every week and I've grown to love it and I now realise that it is still beautiful. It's just beautiful in a very different way. One of the other things that your detractors say is that rewilding can't feed the world and yet we know that a third of food is, is thrown away. So there is likely to be space for rewilding alongside farming and you're a champion of regenerative farming. Could you describe a little bit about what that means to you? Well, you're absolutely right. Every debate about food security, about whether we have enough food, we have to identify the fact that we throw away between 30 and 40% of our food. But we know that farming, conventional farming, as we used to do, it, it just cannot go on. This is a very short-term solution to feeding people. Farmers Weekly, just a couple of years ago, wrote an article saying that we have less than 100 harvests left in the UK if we carry on the way we're going. We've got to stop ploughing. It was one of the most destructive inventions that man ever created was the plough. So we need to move to regenerative farming systems. We would pitch rewilding as farming's greatest ally. It can form the buffers that can protect agricultural land, so it can prevent flooding. It can produce the pollinating insects. All the pest control, the natural pest control, which means that we can farm without using pesticides. But it can also store carbon. That's massively important if we're going to win the battle against climate change. So back to the Ashdown Forest for a moment and its links with NEP. And this is only episode three of the Ashdown Forest podcast, but in each episode we've referred to wheel to waves, but not in any great depth. So could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about your aspirations for this wildlife corridor? Absolutely. We had this remarkable phone call in lockdown. Uh, there was a farmer called James Baird, and he is a conventional farmer, but he has got to a point in his life, he says, where he really feels he needs to give back to nature. And so he was ringing us because towards the end of the book, I say, you know, we have a pipe dream that one day we could connect NEP with the sea via wildlife corridors and connect with the sort of wonderful Help the Kelp, that huge marine protection area where the kelp is recovering off the Sussex coast. James said, I am that connection. You've been looking in the wrong spot. You've got to come to me. I am the only place on the south coast that has significant areas of nature still that hasn't been built on. I'm at the Climping Gap and you've got to connect with me via NEP. And within six months we had signed up a number of farmers and landowners between us to sign a memorandum of understanding that we would create a corridor 
between us. We don't know quite yet what that corridor will look like. Will it be just farmers going pesticide-free, which would be a huge boon for wildlife. It would make that area much more permeable to wildlife. Will it be farmers allowing their hedgerows to grow out so that nightingales could take up in them? Will it be sacrificing some land to allow the floodplain to revert? And then James Adler, CEO of Ashdown Forest, got to hear about it and said, well, you know, Ashdown Forest is feeling a little bit alone out here and lots of building development and conventional farming going on around it. It would also like to connect. So it's about 25 miles from Net to Klimping, to the sea, and it's about 25 miles, as the turtle dove flies, from Net to Ashdown Forest. And we had a wonderful meeting with the trustees of Ashdown Forest, and James said, um, OK, race you to the middle. <laughs> so, so it's just it, it's in the very early days of discussion. We've got so much interest from people en route, If anything, it's going to be a challenge on how to actually limit the ambition of this project because so many people are interested. But I think it's caught the imagination of the public too. How can we all connect together again and actually do something for nature? And this, I think, will will show how physically it can happen. Thank you, Isabella. And just to end, we do these wildlife interludes, so we let nature speak in between our interviewees. Do you have one, two or three (laughs) Heathland sounds that you love? Well, I think to, to make me feel really at home, if you have nightingales here, I would love to hear nightingales. We've lost, we've lost nightingales on the Ashdown Forest. Have you? That's interesting. I would love to hear skylarks. We can definitely do skylarks. Can you do woodlarks? Yes, we've had them, we've had them a few times. I'd <laughs> love to hear woodlark. Thank you very much, Isabella. Pleasure. So Tom and I are out on another dusk walk and that was the sound of cattle munching the very dry grass. We've been used to the sounds of walking through wet bogs but it's a nice summer's evening. Oh, tower over our head. Just standing on the edge of the... As the woodland merges, the Scots pines merge into the heathland. Oh, and there it's starting to churn out. Oh, perfect. Just what we came out here for. And we're just at that magical time of day where the day shift hands over to the night shift, the last robins singing away in the woodland. We've heard our first little hoot of a tawny owl. Woodcock has passed overhead on its roading display flight. And now nightjars join the party as well. Absolutely perfect. I was about to comment on the, the cattle, but it's hard to talk about a cattle when you've got nightjar going off. Yeah, but if it weren't for the cattle, we wouldn't have the nightjars, so 
So tell us about the role the cattle are playing. Well, it was interesting. Most of the cattle that we saw come past us, they had their faces down in the grass, but one or two of them had a little chomp at young saplings coming up, small trees that, if given the chance to get going, will turn this open heath back into secondary woodland. And all of a sudden, the species that rely on this open, short shrubland start to disappear. So without the cattle, you don't have the nightjar. And how could we miss that sound? And Tom and I tonight are accompanied by Ash Wormsley, who's the countryside manager at Ashdown Forest Centre. Yeah, good evening. Ash, can you tell us about the heartening news that I've heard about nightjars? Nightjars are really important to Ashdown Forest. They're one of our two species that give us our legal international protections. So we need to monitor their populations very, very closely. Now, last year we did an annual nightjar survey and we counted 85 calling males across the whole forest, which is uh, it's fantastic. And 85 means possibly, what's two 85s? I'd say must not the strong point, but it's uh, 160. <laughs> if you count that we hope that they're with females. Yes, exactly. So basically for the calling males, we're looking at four territory sizes. So it's indicating that they've got a territory and they're waiting for the female to come in. How do you judge a territory's scope? What we have to do is we use a team of volunteers, we split out across the forest and then we listen out for the calling males, we mark it on a map in the time that they're calling, we move on a little bit and then we spend a good couple of hours doing that in an evening and then we collate all those results. And how much can you distinguish between one call and another or do they all sound quite similar? They all sound pretty similar but what we have to do is when we're walking out if you hear two at the same time we know there's definitely two territories there. And Tom can you tell us how the night jars actually get here? They've made it here for all the good work that the rangers have been doing to keep this lovely heathland open but these birds have made an incredible journey lasting nearly two months to get here from the Democratic Republic of Congo, where they overwinter, (laughs) something like 9,000 kilometres, just to get to our lovely sunny Sussex, although they see it more by night when they emerge to display and to feed on abundant flying insects, moths, dung beetles, things like that. time to round off so last time we asked you to follow us or subscribe to us and that would be great and this time we'd like to ask you to rate and review us and if you have the time and inclination to spread the word on social media and if you're at all in a position to support us with funding please do get in touch via our email address ashdownpodcast at gmail.com as you know we're trying to tell the stories of the ashdown forest and its special nature and enhance visitors' appreciation, which we hope ultimately will help to serve to protect it. And in our next episode, we have musician Sam Lee, celebrator of the nightingale, who convenes Singing with Nightingales gatherings, as well as Dave Goulson, who specialises in bumblebees and is widely seen as a conservation hero. So that's all from me and Tom for now. Good night. Good night. Good night.